in Calgary. The most powerful forces in our society are these mega corporations that are politically dominant. If we judge our media system by how toughly it examines, scrutinizes these forces, it's usually a failure. Don't get me wrong, Fox News is always yelling about the billionaire George Soros, and MSNBC is always yelling about the Mercers or the Koch brothers. But the corporate system, corporate power is generally off limits. On issue after issue, corporate mainstream media want to narrow the debate. That's Jeff Cohen, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jeff Cohen and Janine Jackson on cutting through corporate media BS. With few exceptions, the corporate mainstream media operate within very narrow parameters. In one corner, you have MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, and in the other, you have Fox's Sean Hannity. And they do present contrasting views, but the boundaries of discussion are limited. Certain topics are taboo, such as U.S. imperialism, or really existing capitalism, not the wonders of the free market propaganda we're bombarded with. Deep institutional structures are never the focus of attention. Here and there, people make mistakes and are called out. And tactics and policies are criticized. But the overall framework of power remains intact and unchallenged. The corporate mainstream media fulfills its role as a cover for a system that is clearly failing for the many, but benefits the few. But there are alternatives to the BS. Our guests today are Jeff Cohen and Janine Jackson. Jeff Cohen founded Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, the New York-based media watch group in 1986. He was founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College, where he was an associate professor of journalism. Janine Jackson is FAIR's program director and producer host of FAIR's syndicated weekly radio program, Counterspin. She contributes frequently to FAIR's newsletter, Extra. They spoke on January 19th. We begin with Jeff Cohen. The news media system basically has three wings. Two of them are corporate, corporate right-wing and corporate centrist. Most Republicans get all of their news from the right-wing corporate sources. This is Fox News, it's uh, talk radio, Newsmax, uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group, Breitbart, and then even more extreme sources of information on the internet all the way to QAnon. It's very dangerous when tens of millions of people are getting all their information from these sources. We saw the danger on January 6th with the Stop the Steal riot on Capitol Hill where they're erecting gallows outside the Capitol building while they're storming inside chanting, hang Mike Pence, and someone is carving in a door inside the Capitol building, murder the media. This threat of right-wing powerful media is not going to go away. Most Democrats get their information from corporate centrist outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, Time, the 
TV networks, CNN, MSNBC. These are the most influential sources in society, but they're losing some influence with the rise of the right wing corporate media and with the rise of independent non-corporate media. Independent non-corporate media have boomed for the last 15, 20 years. Millions of people get their information every day and sometimes every hour from sources that because of the internet, bringing down the cost of production and distribution, they were able to grow. I'm talking about Democracy Now!, Alternet, Common Dreams, Jacobin, Salon, The Intercept, The Nation, The Young Turks. And these outlets do not have mega corporations as their owners and sponsors. They are not constrained in what stories they can investigate, what guests they can put on the air, and what powerful institutions they can uh, toughly investigate. The corporate centrist outlets have always claimed historically that they are neutral, they're not ideological. This claim is hard to defend because for years they've been openly campaigning against Trump. For months they were openly campaigning for Biden and for a couple months they were openly campaigning against Bernie. But they were always ideological. When they were erecting this narrow circumscribed debate about Vietnam with the hawks and the so-called doves, that was ideology. For years on health care, up through 2015, where the right wing of the debate is status quo and the left wing is Obamacare. And Obamacare was a measure that originated from the right wing think tank, the Heritage Foundation, and the legislation itself was shaped by the lobbyists from the most powerful health insurance and pharmaceutical companies. And this was the narrow debate with Medicare for all pushed off to the margins, rarely mentioned. Now, the breakthrough of unexpectedly of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns really created another mini crisis for the mainstream media because some of his ideas could crash through the mainstream media. They couldn't ignore Sanders. He was in the Democratic Party primaries. He was having the biggest rallies, perhaps in modern political history. He was in the Democratic Party debates. And so at least temporarily, tangentially, those issues had to be dealt with. This might have been one of the happiest headlines from mainstream news media on the day that Sanders left. This is from Fox Business Channel's website. Stock surge after Bernie Sanders suspends presidential campaign. Now, Bernie calls himself a socialist. Bernie and AOC are two of the only well-known socialists in our country. That's not the case. There are many well-known socialists in other countries that get into mainstream media. When pollsters ask people if they have a favorable view of socialism and those people say yes, and many people in our country do say yes, what they're really saying is they agree with the Bernie AOC policy agenda, the handful of issues that they know, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, uh, free public college tuition, cancel college student debt by paying for it with a Wall Street tax, tax the rich, regulate or break up monopolies. Poll after poll has shown that most people under, for years, most people under 35 or 40 have a more favorable view of socialism as they understand it 
as opposed to capitalism. Most Democrats have a favorable view of socialism. Near the end of the Democratic primaries, NBC News was polling people who had just voted. Exit polls. And they found even in conservative states, most Democrats were favorable towards socialism. Uh, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, in the state of Texas, where Bernie lost to Biden. 57% told NBC News they are favorable towards socialism. Only 37% said unfavorable. Now, one of the happy myths of capitalism is that consumers are in charge because the capitalists trip over themselves competing to satisfy consumer needs and consumer demand. Needless to say, when NBC News discovered these millions of people in the U.S. population that were favorable to socialism, they didn't run out and hire a bunch of pro-socialist journalists or pundits. There was not a single socialist advocate hired by Comcast Corporation at NBC, MSNBC, or CNBC. I want to finish by talking about the heavy-handed ideological role that mainstream journalists, centrist journalists played in and around the Democratic Party debates. Of the two major parties, the Democrats are to the left, but not a single independent left journalist or progressive journalist was allowed to ask any questions during the dozen Democratic primary debates. Katrina Vanden Heuvel of The Nation was not invited onto a panel to ask the Democratic candidates questions. Naomi Klein of The Intercept was not invited. The corporate leadership of the Democratic Party put the debates in the hands of the corporate centrist outlets, ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post. So in debate after debate, these journalists grilled Bernie Sanders and occasionally uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren on Medicare for all. How expensive is it going to be? How can we afford it? How much will taxes go up on the middle class? What's your price tag? And the, the bias only got worse in the next three debates. In every debate, Bernie would say very clearly, my proposal will cost about 30, 32 trillion dollars over 10 years. And he very clearly also said, but according to government studies, and I have one here, and government statistics, if we stick with the status quo, healthcare will cost society close to $50 trillion over those 10 years. And what was fascinating is journalists at the debates or in the post-debate coverage only focused on that first figure. No one focused on the figure of the status quo, the price tag. And that would, that's what reminded me of the George Carlin joke, where he's a sportscaster. There's a partial score in from the West Coast, Los Angeles 6, and he doesn't give the other score. It's inadequate to tell a story if you only give one price tag and you harp on how expensive it is and you don't give the other price tag. Uh, needless to say, Biden was not probed. How much will your plan cost since you have virtually no cost controls and healthcare is exploding? Uh, that question was never asked. On issue after issue, where corporate mainstream media want to narrow the debate and narrow uh, the public's consideration 
of what's reasonable and as a policy solution and what's just unrealistic, you'll find that social, the price tag of social reform is always emphasized, but the higher cost of sticking with the status quo is not. You could look at the Green New Deal proposed by AOC and Senator Markey of uh, Massachusetts. This would shift our economy, our energy, transportation, housing, agriculture away from fossil fuels to renewables and conservation, creating millions of jobs that could not be outsourced. And uh, AOC will tell you it, her plan will cost at least $10 trillion. But the cost of not reforming, the cost to society in the ever-increasing droughts, floods, fires, hurricanes, that cost in human hardship and in dollars will be higher, but that's not emphasized in mainstream media. If you reduce the issue from society to a household, and I've got a hole in my roof, and I know it's going to cost me $12,000 to rebuild the, uh, the roof and thereby save the house. And another approach to the problem is to just keep patching it up every time it rains for a few hundred dollars a pop. There's no serious person, journalist or not, who would look at that other, that, that latter proposal of patching up the roof as a serious or realistic approach to the problem. No one would call it a moderate approach to the problem, but go to the societal level, the level of uh, political economy. Uh, when progressives propose structural reforms, the corporate mainstream media are always portraying us. In Fox News, we're called extremists and more polite New York Times. We're just not realistic. It's not reasonable. It's not doable. Uh, but sticking with the status quo was always the moderate approach. I believe we judge a media system by how well it scrutinizes the most powerful forces in society. Those forces that exert so much influence on society as a whole and the citizenry. By this standard, we could look at a media system, say in China, and we could say the system generally is a failure because the most powerful institutions are the Communist Party, the state, the state monopolies, and the media system doesn't scrutinize them very toughly. And not surprisingly, uh, the media outlets are mostly owned by those institutions. So move to U.S. society. The most powerful forces in our society are these mega corporations that are politically dominant. If we judge our media system by how toughly it examines, scrutinizes these forces, it's also usually a failure. Uh, don't get me wrong. Fox News is always yelling about the billionaire George Soros. And MSNBC is always yelling about the Mercers or the Koch brothers. But the corporate system, corporate power is generally off limits. I'm not making the argument that U.S. mainstream journalists are as constrained as Chinese journalists. Far from it. I worked with a lot of good journalists in the mainstream. But the standard of how to judge a media system, is it scrutinizing the most powerful forces in society the way it should, that's a good standard for how to judge a media system. I'll stop here and turn it over to Janine Jackson. When I left FAIR, I was worried about 
uh, fair. It's better than ever. It's been better for the last 10, 20 years. And Janine is one of the leaders of fair. Uh, so Janine Jackson, you have the floor. Thank you very much. It's not clear to me that folks understand that back in 1986, when Jeff was thinking about starting FAIR, media were not problematized, you know, in, in the way that they are now. We didn't think of them in the same way as something where really their news media in particular, where their impact on society was fully understood. The attitude was kind of, well, if you don't like it, turn it off you know, um, which now we can hear as what it is, it's kind of like saying, well, if you're upset by pollution, close the window. You know, we, we recognize that that is not uh, sufficient. So in, in many ways, I think FAIR's contribution has been to call attention to the ownership structure and the, and the sponsorship structure of news media. We often say, you know, journalism is a public service, but media is a business. And it's that conflict between making the decision, which was a historical decision, it's not at all natural or necessary, the decision we made in this country, that these vehicles by which we learn about what's happening in the world, by which we learn about one another, will be primarily owned by big corporations and will be fueled or funded also by big corporations. That was a choice. We could have chosen differently. We could still choose differently. So... Part of that has been our encouragement for folks to see media as an industry, to recognize that reporters are, well, as, as Jeff underscores, and as we always do, some of them are, are brave and smart and thoughtful. They are also employees. They are also employees in the way that, that many of us are employees. Um, they work in a climate. Like any other worker, they work in a climate. When Disney owned ABC, and Disney was promoting the movie 101 Dalmatians. Well, everyone at ABC News, the editors, the reporters, the producers, their paychecks all had spots on them, right? You're aware that you work for a company. You are made aware that you work for a company. It's not conspiracy theory. This is one of the things that we try to emphasize is this isn't about um, smoky back rooms in which media owners and sponsors get together and decide how to how to uh, misinform. You know, it's it's not like that. It's more things like, well, Time Magazine doing a special issue on the environment, and they get a sole sponsor for that issue, and that sponsor is the Ford Motor Company. Now, the reason I tell the story is because of a comment that an editor of Time Magazine made at the time when someone said, well, you know, you've got an auto company sponsoring your environmental issue. Uh, are, are there any problems involved in that? And this editor said on the record, you know, out loud, chuckling, you know, well, of course, we aren't going to include stories on auto pollution in this issue. He said, after all, you don't run stories on plane crashes next to ads for airlines. So sit with that for a minute, right? Um, the, the point of it is he didn't, he, he shared that openly. He made it clear that that's a thing that everyone in the industry understands, that sponsors have say over the context in which their ads appear, which is how they refer to what we call the news, um, and that they are very aware of those potential conflicts. So if you think about it, well, the climate is a plane crash and ExxonMobil is an airline, right? 
Endless war is a plane crash and defense contractors are an airline. So when you're reading a paper and it's chock-a-block with ads for Lockheed Martin and for big banks uh, and for, you know, fuel companies, you have to always be asking yourself, if you're aware of it, you best believe that the reporters are aware of it and the editors are aware of it. Sometimes reporters are fired because they step on the wrong toes, but it doesn't have to be that ham-fisted. And that's what I want to make clear. Um, so uh, this is a consequences of capitalism class. You know that media is a business. I think we, I think we understand that. It's not 1986. That, that awareness is more prevalent. But I want to engage the kind of simple or, or, or almost cynical way that some of us think of that is, oh, well, okay, I understand. They just want eyes on the set. You know, if we're talking about television, they just want to get as many people watching as, so that sponsors can can sell to them. You know, we I think we've internalized the idea that in the, the, the way media works, we're the product, right? Our attention is the product and the sponsor is, in fact, the, the client. They're the one that has to be satisfied. But I want to um, complicate that idea a little bit about they just want eyes on the set, because the truth is media television networks don't simply want eyes on the set. They want the eyes that their sponsors want to reach. And that's not everybody. So that's why in the, in the written piece that I sent around, I talked about discounting, which is really, if you're in the industry, you know it. And if you're outside it, you don't. Discounting is the practice by which sponsors will pay less to advertise or even refuse to advertise at all on stations or in programming that reaches primarily audiences of color. The FCC did research on this looking at radio and they found that sponsors would refuse to pay full price or refuse to advertise at all on radio stations that were part of the what they call urban stations, which is a not very complicated code for, for black people even when research showed that those audiences were able and willing to buy the product. One sponsor simply said, we just don't want them in our store. Okay. One of the sponsors was Ivory Soap. They said they wouldn't advertise on a Latinx station because Hispanics don't bathe as often. So it's important to remember that catering to advertisers means catering to advertisers, including their biases on things like race um, and on, on things like age. You know, we hear, so when you hear, oh, it's not black and white, it's just green. Yeah, it's still black and white, as it turns out. But it's part of the way the business is set up. So, for example, elderly people watch a lot of television. They watch a lot of television traditionally or, you know, generally. And therefore, there are very few programs catering to them. You know, you need to hear that sentence again. Elderly people watch a lot of television and therefore, there is little programming that specifically addresses their concerns or their interests. Why? Sponsors don't have to try to get them. They're already watching. You don't need to make programming that interests them because you've already got their eyes on the set. Sponsors want the 18 to 34, the wealthy, the, you, you can guess who, who sponsors want. Um, and programmers, again, know that. 
So there's that, there's that structural issue, which affects programming never gets on, you know, you, you can't turn on what isn't there. Programming that can't find a sponsor does not get produced. So that's a, a kind of pre-censorship that you're not even aware of when you, when you turn on the television, right? But then we also talk at FAIR about a top-down bias. You know, we do talk, and as, as Jeff has, certainly you can talk about a left-right bias. There's plenty there. But we talk also and maybe more often about a top-down bias, which is simply the fact that reporters believe that news is what powerful people say and do. So that tells you right away that in general, with exceptions, there are always exceptions, but news are going to be legitimizing and in fact reproducing the racial and gender and ability hierarchies that we have in this country because they are defining their project as providing a platform and providing a voice for powerful people. And we know what the hierarchies of power look like in this country. So powerful people lead literally the story and those who are more marginalized, those who are dissenters, those who are outside of power get to respond, you know, typically get to have a reaction. And you see it physically in the story. If it's a newspaper, you know, here's the lead is what the powerful person said. And then down here, we'll get some comments from some people who disagree. You should know that when, for example, a wire service produces a, a 20 paragraph story, not every outlet that takes that piece takes has room for all of it. So sometimes they chop off the last four paragraphs. Well, if the last four paragraphs are where the dissenting view comes in, then many people around the country are getting just the views of the powerful uh, in, in that news article. So when you tell reporters, and FAIR you know, often does studies of sources who gets to speak, just who are the sources in the news media. And when you go to reporters and say, or when you go to journalists and outlets and say, you know, your sources are overwhelmingly these straight, cis, white men that don't actually reflect the makeup of the country. And they say, essentially, it's not our fault who's in power. You know, that's not our fault. We just, we're just reflecting. This is the governor. This is the president. This is the, the head of this corporation. Yes. To we respond, though, it, it is your fault that you only want to hear from those in power. That is your fault, right? We can define news differently. We can acknowledge that there are plenty of people uh, who have a right to say something and standing to say something and something value to add to a conversation apart from those people who make the policy. We need to also hear from people who are affected by policy who may disagree with policy. But corporate news media, as we understand them, are constantly honoring power you know, and are, are reifying, if I can use that term, the status quo in terms of power relationships in this country. If you have to file three stories a day because your outlet has made an economic decision, a business decision that you got to, you, you know, they've laid off reporters and now every reporter that's left has to do more. So now you have to file, maybe you used to have to file one a day. Now you've got to file three stories a day. So who are you going to quote? Are you going to quote the, the well-funded group that's been able to send you a press release with a quote embedded in it and that has a phone number and you can just call somebody and they've got a person waiting by the phone to take your call and give you a quote? Is Are you going to include those that voice in your story? 
Or are you going to include the perspective of people that you don't know? You never met them at a conference, much less at a cocktail party. They work doing work, you know, if they don't have somebody who can just pick up the phone because you're a news reporter and can talk to you, they might be out in the field where you have to go to them. Well, you got three stories to finish today. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to rely overwhelmingly on those sources that are entities and institutions that are well resourced enough to push their news to you to the extent that it's relying on you identifying news sources, people you don't know, who we as, as, as citizens think need to be included in the story, it's just not gonna happen. And it's not gonna not happen because as a reporter, you're a bad person or because you're lazy or stupid. Um, certainly some reporters are, are lazy and stupid, you know, um, let's not deny it, but that's not the point. You don't have to be. What you have to be is a, is a cog in a machine that is more a business than it is a journalistic entity. So it's made decisions that are business decisions that affect your ability to do real journalism, period, much less the really kind of aggressive, investigative, critical, deep going journalism that we really genuinely need. You're listening to Janine Jackson and Jeff Cohen on Cutting Through Corporate Media Beats. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program and Noam Chomsky's latest book, Consequences of Capitalism. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Our website, Alternative Radio. Dot org. So you're reporting from Cairo and your outlet has made a decision as a business that they can't really pay for a translator. Okay. So who are you going to talk to? You're going to talk to the other English speakers at the hotel bar and that's going to affect your story. That's going to be a business decision, an economic decision that was made that is going to affect the journalist's ability to report and our ability to understand. When you publish a story about an official enemy like Venezuela and you tell the story of how of the hardship and the suffering and the economic difficulties that that country is going under and you leave out the fact that the U.S. is engaged in crippling sanctions on Venezuela and that that has a whole hell of a lot to do with the economic difficulties that that country is facing. Well, then you're reifying existing power relationships. You're just underscoring power relationships that suggest that U.S. dominance is natural um, and dissent from it, it is illegitimate. When local TV news looks like a police blotter, right? Black and brown people being arrested, low-wage black and brown people being arrested generally for street crimes, uh, and being associated again and again and again, night after night, with crime and with pathology, whereas the massive and horrific crime of wage theft by corporations is not going to be on that nightly news. And you're not going to see the perp walk of the, the CEO, you know, in, in handcuffs. And you're not going to develop an association between people who look like that and societal harm. You're certainly not going to see it night after night after night. And then, you know, when the story is even a terrific story about sweatshops, for example, it's hard hitting, it's talking to individuals on the ground, 
it's showing the, the difficulties that, that are faced, you know, um, by these people. It's showing that, you know, it's comparing how little they live on to what you or I may have in the United States. And then at the end of the report, it says, representatives from Walmart declined to speak with us. You know, they don't, they don't have to. They don't have to. They can simply say, no, we're not going to, you're not going to interrogate us. You're not, you know, so you can find other people to, to sort of ask questions, to say, we wonder what Walmart would say if we ask them, but you don't get a chance to really interrogate Walmart directly. And that's corporate power at work. Not only will they not say, uh, not only will they just not say, well, yeah, you have to speak with us. We really, we need a representative because we're making some serious charges here. I can't believe you don't want to come on and defend yourself. They will say, Walmart declined to speak to us, but they did uh, release this official statement, which we are now dutifully going to read, which says the truth is that every worker gets a unicorn and anyone who says different is a filthy commie. Okay, thank you. Good night. You know, that's just carrying water for the corporations that, uh, that own and fund media. The other piece that I wanted to talk about is just representation. You know, media outlets are like any other, many other institution in US society. They're institutionally racist and sexist and they don't wanna change because that's when their standards were developed. You know, um, it's the same difficulty you find at banks or at any other corporation where white men are still at the top and there are still a thousand reasons every day why that black person or that Latinx person didn't get the promotion and on and on and on. Media are part of that too. Um, newspapers in particular have a long racist history in this country. I strongly recommend the book News for All the People by Juan Gonzalez and Joe Torres, which will give you uh, some of that history and you'll understand why, for example, the Kansas City Star just apologize to the black community for the decades and decades of, of, you know, printing ads to, for slaves to be caught and on and on and on and, and really um, dehumanizing, demonizing coverage when it existed and a lot of absence and silence uh, where coverage of the black community did not exist. They're actually coming forward and apologizing for those harms, which I think we should see more of that. You know, uh, if, if, if this country had a racial reckoning every time news media said we had a racial reckoning, we'd be reckoned, you know, we'd be reckoned by now, you know, but newspapers not just turning their gaze outward to talk about white supremacy in this country, but also looking at the way their own institutions have contributed to it. That's a positive step. The American Society of Newspaper Editors had a goal of newsrooms are going to look like America by I think it was 2000, um, that wasn't happening. They pushed the goal back. Maybe newsrooms will look like America in 2010. Maybe they'll look like in America. And then they just gave up, right? They, and essentially said newsrooms are never going to reflect demographically the makeup of the country. Um, and that matters. We understand very much that um, it matters very much who is in the room when decisions are made. We talk at FAIR a lot about structure because we think it's very important, but we also, you know, when you zoom in, it also is about individuals in individual situations. Think about uh, the AP reporter. When Margaret Thatcher was named uh, prime minister of England, 
The AP foreign reporter wanted to write the lead. Margaret Thatcher, a peaches and green blonde, blonde, has just been named prime minister of England, you know, and his editor said, no, we can't, we're not going to call Margaret Thatcher a peaches and cream blonde in the lead of our story about who's just been made prime minister. You, you have to understand, we don't talk about, you don't talk about women in that way. We're, you know, we're beyond that. The point of that story is, uh, the only reason that that got changed is because the editor was a woman. The reporter was a man. He never understood what was wrong with that lead. He was never convinced there was anything wrong with describing the new prime minister as a peaches and cream blonde. He never accepted it. He just got overruled because in that case, his editor was a woman. So it matters very much. And, and I'll end with just to bring that up to the present day. Five women in New York have just won a lawsuit against the New York station New York One, which is kind of a, a, a local station which everyone loves, you know, because it seems kind of it's local, first of all, and we're losing a lot of genuinely local news. So folks love New York One. Well, these five women just won a lawsuit because they were able to prove that as they got older, they got pushed aside and it didn't happen to the men. They got moved to the weekend. They got moved to another you know, a smaller show where they place, build a new studio that the women weren't allowed to use. Um, one lead anchor, when he reached his 20 years with the station, the station did a big salute to him. He's been here 20 years. His co-anchor, a woman, had been there 25 years at that point and got bupkis. So they won their suit. They were able to prove that within this news organization that we're all thinking are just deciding what goes on the air based on journalistic criteria, they were able to prove that, no, there was systemic, in this case, sexist bias against women journalists, where their credentials were ignored. It was just what they looked like. They were subject to different kinds of rules than the men were, and that affected what we were able to see on the air. Well, they won their suit, but... Is that a win? All those women are now off the air. And you best believe that as New York One hires new women, there's going to be spoken or unspoken the idea of you're not going to sue us, right? Like you understand how the game is played, right? You know, uh, the reason we're hiring women is because they aren't here anymore and we all know why, right? Media jobs are like other jobs in that sense that you work in a climate, you know what's okay to do and say, and you know what isn't. Again, the important thing is that news is not toasters. News is what we use to shape our understanding and our beliefs about what is politically possible, about what other people believe and think, about what other countries do that we might do as well. So all of these behind the scenes things that Jeff and I have been talking about are things that we have to actively keep in our mind anytime we consume news. And finally, Talk around the media. Talk to one another around the media. You know, keep alive the alternative and independent sources that we have, but also recognize that while we work on reforming these media institutions, we simply can't rely on them to be the field where we do the communication that we so obviously need to do to make the social change that we so obviously need to have. Well, thanks very much to both of you. Those were terrific presentations. We really appreciate them. Um, a number of questions have come up, and I'm just going to uh, start with a couple of them for you. The first one, this came up several times, and I'd like uh, both of your um, re replies to this. What, what about 
um, the utility of public funding uh, for media, um, either a BBC style or something that uh, perhaps PBS and NPR used to be like in certain ways. What, what are your thoughts about um, public funding for media? Um, I would say it's great and we should have it. You know, I mean, one thing that we've forgotten is that when public television started, it started with a beautiful ideal. And it, the ideal was specifically to provide a place for voices that the commercial market doesn't want to hear. They didn't say, let's have a high-minded, classy kind of British network. They said, let's make a space for people that commercial media are not going to support and allow them to speak. Unfortunately, right out of the box, under Nixon, public television and public broadcasting was required to go back to Congress. It was meant to be insulated from having to go to Congress for its spending, at least for a few years. And it, that got turned around immediately so that PBS and public broadcasting have to go to Congress every single year to get their funding, which has led to them really being a political football and has led them in response to, to, to essentially become a corporate outfit, you know, um, in which you and I, you know, viewers like us pay money to keep the lights on, but actually defense contractors and other folks get to determine what the programming is. So public broadcasting, I think, is a terrific idea. You can't assess it by what it looks like in this country right now. And finally, I would say that the goal, for, from my mind, is not a particular kind of media outlet, but a particular kind of media landscape in which we can have outlets that are public, that are private, that are some combination, that come from university, that come from civil society, but that we have a landscape of different sorts of structures because we know it's different sorts of structures that bring you different kinds of media content. And uh, uh, Janine mentioned how the role of corporate underwriters has deformed public broadcasting. It's that underwriting has come into a vacuum. The vacuum is that our public broadcasting, besides lacking this independence, it just isn't funded by taxpayers. Uh, in other countries like Scandinavia, Northern Europe, per capita, like $150, $180 of tax money per person is going to the public broadcasting system, which in many places is fairly diverse. And in England, I think it's $80 per person tax money goes to BBC. In Canada, it's very low. It's like $28 per person. And in the United States, it's $4 per person of tax money. And into that vacuum goes all the corporate underwriting that Janine mentioned. And when academics have done studies of which countries have higher level of information about the news, about current events, it's usually these countries that have the big public broadcasting systems, and those are the most watched channels in those countries. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, scholarship on that. And there's this mythology that if the state gives money to broadcasting or to journalism, the state will control broadcasting and journalism. The reality is when you study freedom of the press, the countries that have the most freedom of the press are also the countries that uh, get the most uh, taxpayer funding to journalism. We could do this in our country as well. There are uh, several different variants on this question, but they're all related to the issue of the role of the, of the internet and new social media. 
uh, thinking about, first of all, the, the sort of democratizing potential that is that it's, it's clearly got a set of upsides, but also the a set of questions about the gatekeeping role of the mega corporations that now control the platforms, which has been very evident uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so the question really revolves around whether or not um, they, or how, how do you see the balance of internet and new social media in terms of both a potential for democratizing information, finding new outlets uh, to sort of sidestep the main media, as Janine was talking about. Uh, but at the same time, these uh, mega corporations both siloing uh, their audiences and, and segmenting them in the ways that you've both talked about. Um, and then having this very significant control um, over what gets posted, what doesn't get posted. And related to that, there's a quick question about uh, whether you could speak a, a, at least a little bit about the issue of net neutrality. The Internet has been crucial to the rise of independent non-corporate media. Without the Internet, this boom wouldn't have happened. More people are getting their news from non-corporate sources every day than ever. I've studied the uh, pre-World War I socialist media press, and it was vast, but it was only weekly. In the late 60s, early 70s, there was this network of underground newspapers, alternative newspapers. Uh, Pacifica had started. It doesn't come close to what independent, non-corporate media are doing in terms of professionalism and audience. Our media system didn't have to be given all in the hands of private corporations as it was in the 20s and 30s. It's not natural. That was policy decisions by the government. And, and the Internet did not have to be monopolized. It's a major threat that uh, these platforms can shut off voices they don't like. And I, I'm with Zephyr Teachout, who's written a new book about breaking up monopolies in big agriculture, big Wall Street, and big tech. I think these uh, monopolies either have to be broken up or regulated as utilities. Net neutrality is simple. It says that the companies that bring you your internet, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, that they can't take websites they dislike, push them into a slow lane while websites they own or that pay them uh, get put in the fast lane. It's only because we've had net neutrality for all these years that people have access to democracy now, the Young Turks, common dreams. The fight to save net neutrality got a big boost when Trump was defeated and Biden was elected, because now the FCC will not be trying to give all the power to Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon to be able to shove websites they don't like into a slow lane. A lot of the news sites that people go to on the internet are in fact traditional so-called gatekeeper media, just their internet version. So be careful of, you know, thinking something's new when it's really old wine in new, in new barrels, you know, but it is the case that there is a possibility. There's a tremendous amount of potential, which big tech companies recognize and have been trying to shrink down all along while they had allies at the FCC we did see this attack on net neutrality. If the makeup at the FCC changed, then it's possible that we can see some regulation um, that would push things in, the, in a good direction, except I don't think it will be enough. I do think we have to bring in some fundamental antitrust law 
and also to recognize the role that things like Facebook and Twitter, which maybe you didn't, we couldn't have predicted, but they do now have this fundamental role in which it's difficult for competitors to grow and in which they really ought to be regulated as public utilities. Uh, and FAIR has done a great job of pointing this out. A number of the websites that have been harmed by Google being such a monopoly were left-wing websites like World Socialist Website or Counterpunch. They can document how they've been undermined. If you watch Fox News, all you hear about is the big tech conspiracy against the right wing. Uh, but a, a lot of uh, websites on the left were punished by these monopolistic platforms. How much uh, do the mainstream media or even new social media to some extent, how much do they tell us what to think versus how much do they sort of reflect back to us what we think? Well, that takes me right back to sources. One of my biggest complaints about media is that we hear a lot from people we hear a lot from. It's as though it's been determined that there are only some voices worth hearing. It doesn't matter if they predicted the Iraq war wrong, it doesn't matter if they didn't see the housing bubble coming, we're still gonna have that same conversation uh, with those same players, even when there are other people who could add something much, you know, historical reference, cultural reference, you know, context, could provide more context. So I think there is a lot of telling us to think, frankly. Um, I think uh, media, and again, it's you come back to the structure they don't really want to have a conversation that's going to make you so confused or so angry that you don't sit still for the soap commercial. You really have to have it kind of understood or conveyed that there may be problems, there are problems, but the system works, the system works, the system works. I think that's the main message that we get from news media that, that is the telling us what to think and what to believe. And to the extent that we can get new voices in, then it starts helping us ask questions instead of simply feeding us uh, preconceived answers. Yeah, I, I think that news outlets are openly now telling us not just what to think about, but what to think. I mean, when you had uh, almost all of the corporate centrist media just campaigning for Biden against Trump, uh, there wasn't a lot of just, oh, think about these issues. It was, here's what right people think. It's gotten more and more that way. Matt Taibbi sort of wrote a book about it called Hate, Inc. Um, but I, I, I mean, even in the older days, it was more what Noam wrote about during the Vietnam War, just a very narrow debate. You'd see the debate day after day. You know, reasonable thought was between the Hawks and the Vietnam War doves. And, and it, it's crazy to go outside of that. But I, I believe it's more openly, here's what you should be thinking about these issues. As, as media consumers and viewers, what can people actually do to become more media savvy, um, to think about ways in which the kind of issues that you've been describing uh, can at least be recognized and so that what we take in, uh, we uh, filter in the appropriate ways? Well, my advice is, first of all, that there really isn't a substitute for informing yourself independently as a citizen. There really is no substitute for that. And my encouragement is never, folks often want to say, okay, well, I won't read the New York Times anymore. What should I read? You know, what should be the, the one organ that I read and believe everything? There isn't a single news source. Um, certainly some are better or worse, but what I always recommend is reading widely. 
you know, reading, particularly getting some international perspective into your news diet. And you could, should keep that diet as diverse uh, as you can. Um, some of that media is going to be specialized media. It's going to just be about the South. It's going to just be about Black women. It's going to just be about nuclear power. That can inform you. One sort of new bit of advice that I offer is that, and maybe it's just personal, but I really recommend that people not read a dozen, instead of reading 50 headlines during the day, pick, pick two or three stories and read those stories and, and sit with them and follow them. You know, oh, I read this in the Times, but now it's raising some questions. Maybe I ought to look at a Venezuela outlet, you know, or maybe I ought to, you know, follow something out. Try to get a deeper understanding of one or two stories during the course of the day, rather than doing that scrolly, 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 where you feel like you're learning about a lot of different things, but you're really just spinning your wheels and giving yourself a headache. Yeah, I agree with all of what Janine just said. I would also encourage people to sign up at fair.org uh, and it will let, it'll sort of alert you to what you might have been missing when you were listening to NPR, what they, who they didn't put on the air. And sometimes whistleblowers, people working in the mainstream media will communicate with Janine and fair about what really happened on that story behind the scenes. So going to fair.org is very helpful. Uh, I think multiplicity of sources, because I was on the big three cable news channels, it's a habit I can't stop. I watch Fox News along with MSNBC and CNN every day. And now I've gotten in the habit of watching two news sources that are gonna be growing big. They're, they make Fox News look left wing. One America News and Newsmax, and they are growing. And Trump is going to try to boost those two uh, networks that are on satellite. But yeah, the multiplicity of sources is crucial. As a citizen, what you need to do when you're finding a good journalistic source, perhaps a nonprofit, non non corporate source, use social media to tell your friends and neighbors and relatives about that source. In independent non-corporate media, they don't have bad budgets for advertising. They need citizens to spread the word about them. And so I, I encourage people as citizens, support independent <clears throat> media, donate to independent media. You were just listening to Jeff Cohen and Janine Jackson on Cutting Through Corporate Media BS. They spoke on January 19th. Jeff Cohen is the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, the New York-based media watch group. Janine Jackson is FAIR's program director and producer host of FAIR's syndicated weekly radio program, Counterspin. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a wide range of programs, including a special series on the media. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Jeff Cohen and Janine Jackson on Cutting Through Corporate Media BS, and for our special book offer, Noam Chomsky's latest, Consequences of Capitalism, Manufacturing Discontent. 
Call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Noam Chomsky and Marv Weatherstone. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with polarity. News goo. Wish you were as soft and smooth. The world in a minute. Morning sound station carried no news of the world. Corporate America owns all the networks. Freedom of the press is only guaranteed when you own the press. Communication breakdown. Pause for the message. Wake up. Every station is a identification. Global syndication is the shaping of the nation. ABC, Disney, NBC, GE, Murdoch is Foxy, and with a hint, he owns a pen. The camera, the sword, by a Coke, by a Ford, getting broke, getting bored. And experience your psychic connection. We don't have shit to say. We don't have anything to do. What we want, what we need, what we want, what we need. But do we even know who plans to see? You think the media works for you, but it's a job for them. They're just selling proof. Flip, flam, diagram, data jam, handicap, caught it. Yo, you bought it. My mind is a profitable thing to waste. You want another taste, baby? Got news, good. What we need to know. Freedom is a rumor. In an emergency meeting, members of CJSW's party planning committee meet to decide our next party theme. My idea of the best party ever is putting on music super loud and have a pool party with all of my friends. CJSW 90.9 FM, Calgary. Welcome to the party. Never read the package anyway. I'm not on the 
Jack Stober's Micropop. 